This is The Rounds Table. Good morning or good afternoon, Rounds Table listeners. Thank you for joining us again. We have a fantastic show lined up for you. And the reason I say that this week is because we have an extra special guest. He's brand new to the show. He's taking a seat at the table for the very first time. His name is Dr. Chris Yarnell. He is a critical care fellow at the University of Toronto. And not only that, he is the primary author of a particularly interesting study close to my heart. And we have him here today to discuss it straight from the lion's den, from the horse's mouth. Dr. Yarnell, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Kieran. That's really a nice introduction. So why don't we jump in and you can tell us about the article that you just published. I would love to. It's an article that focuses on the differences between end-of-life care provided to recently immigrated patients as compared to long-standing resident patients in the province of Ontario, Canada. Okay, it's probably clear to most of the listeners now, for those of you who know me, that I love palliative care, and that is why I am so excited for today's show. Chris, tell me, what's the bottom line for your study? Kieran, the bottom line of our study was that recently immigrated patients received more aggressive end-of-life care than long-standing residents, and that included more procedures in the last six months of life and a higher chance of being in the intensive care unit when they died, as opposed to at home or in a long-term care facility. I have so many questions about that, and hopefully we'll answer most of them as we go through. So let's jump right in. Why did you pursue this type of a study? What got you interested? Or if it's more applicable, can you frame it for us in the context of end-of-life care for recent immigrants? Sure. Kieran, as as you know, end-of-life care is an area of medicine where communication, access to care, and cultural background are all very important. In order to provide good care, physicians have to work really closely with their patients and their families to come up with a plan that both makes sense from a medical point of view, but also from the point of view of preferences and values. And in my training as a critical care and internal medicine physician, I've, I've had the privilege to help many patients and families with end-of-life care. And, and I had noticed that recently immigrated patients sometimes faced extra challenges with end-of-life care because of challenges with communication, access to care, and different cultural backgrounds. And so for that reason, we asked the question, do recently immigrated patients receive different end-of-life care than longstanding residents? I, and I certainly um, have had some of those experiences myself, Chris, where uh, you find differences in cultural backgrounds and language barriers between patients uh, who are recently immigrated. And I also sort of makes me face my own ignorance or naivety sometimes to different cultural backgrounds. And I'm sort of shocked how little I know about the cultural sensitivities from other nations. But Canada being a very multicultural nation, we have lots of exposure and we're blessed uh, in that sense. So I can't wait to find out some of the more you know subtle insights that you gain from this study. Let's find out, Chris, how did you address this question? What was the design of your study? So the design we used was a retrospective decedent cohort study. And and this was conducted using administrative data in Ontario. Uh, Here in Ontario, we're very fortunate to have a a universal healthcare system, and one of the byproducts of that system is that we have very detailed and complete databases of all of the healthcare that's provided to people in Ontario. Okay, and who were the patients that you included? You said that they were decedents, so they they have have to have died, but what were some of the more important inclusion or exclusion criteria for your study? Sure, so as far as inclusion criteria, we included all patients who died in Ontario between 2004 and 2015. 
for exclusion criteria, we didn't have any explicit exclusion criteria. But I think it's worth noting that our data did not capture the outcomes of anybody who left Ontario and then died. So for example, someone who was from somewhere else, whether it's another province or another country, and became terminally ill and then decided to return to that other place to receive palliative care. We didn't capture any of those patients. So that's not an explicit exclusion criteria, but it is relevant. Okay. And uh, I think we sort of have a sense already, but just explicitly, what was your exposure in this retrospective cohort study? What what were you looking at as far as uh, what predicted these outcomes as far as care and place of death in their last six months of life? So the main exposure was immigration status. And by that, I mean whether a, a decedent, whether a patient in, in the study had immigrated to Canada. And the hard work of people both at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences and with the Immigration and Refugees Canada Ministry have established a linkage between that administrative healthcare database that I described earlier and immigration data. What that has allowed us to do is to identify all of the decedents or patients within our cohort who immigrated since 1985. Now, it's true that there are many patients in Ontario that have immigrated to Canada before 1985. Uh, in fact, about 20% of Canadians uh, across the country have immigrated from another country. But, you know, we only had data going back to 1985. And so that's why, and, and that's also why we use the term recent immigrant in this case, uh, to differentiate between people who had been here for a long time, but may also have been immigrants in the longstanding resident category. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll find out more about that in the results section. What was the primary outcome? You mentioned a lot of the different things that you measured, but what was the primary outcome that you were measuring in your study? Mm -hmm. So the primary outcome was location of death, comparing death in the intensive care unit to death in any other location. Okay. I think it's quite a uh, good setting of the stage. It's a nice amuse-bouche. Now serve the main course. Chris, what were the main findings of your study? Sure. So we analyzed 967,013 decedents, of whom about 5% or 47,514 to be precise, were recently immigrated patients. 16% of recently immigrated decedents were in the intensive care unit when they died, uh, compared with only 10% of longstanding resident decedents being in the intensive care unit when they died. Even after we adjusted for age, sex, income, geography, cause of death, recently immigrated patients were still 30% more likely to be in the intensive care unit when they died. Now, did you look at, when you say geography, do you mean geography within Canada or Ontario for that matter, or geography as in the where they immigrated from? Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, in the statement of the overall results, what I mean by geography there is actually two things. The first is the extent of urban versus rural uh, where a person lives. So for example, different patients, uh, some patients live in very large cities, some patients live in very rural areas. And so we adjusted for differences in care that you might attribute to the urbanicity of an area, which in Canada is quite important. Uh, and the second thing that I mean is we used generalized estimating equations in order to adjust for geographic clustering. So for the, for the phenomenon where recently immigrated patients, for example, may move to similar areas of Ontario as people from 
the same part of the world. And so then you may end up with uh, confounding due to uh, regional variation in how recently immigrated patients are distributed around the province. And you may also end up with that variation in terms of how long-standing residents are distributed around the province as well. And so we used some equations to help adjust for geographic clustering as well. Okay. So basically, in plain speak, if certain cultures happen to move all to the same area, for example, you'll very often see uh, groups moving to one particular neighborhood in a particular area of the province, you were accounting for that possibility, which may ultimately influence whether they ended up dying in the ICU or elsewhere. Is that sort of a, a correct summary? Yeah, that's the idea. And it, and it wasn't only among recently immigrated patients that we adjusted for geography. Uh, we also adjusted for any potential clustering there might have been among longstanding residents as well. Fantastic. You talked about a whole lot of other outcomes that you had measured and looked at. Uh, what else did you find uh, beyond the you know, increased use of ICU at the end of life for recent immigrants? Well, the first thing I'll mention is our secondary outcomes. Um, because our primary outcome, that finding was quite striking, um, but in isolation, perhaps it, you know, perhaps it was an anomaly of the statistics. However, our secondary outcomes were completely consistent with that primary finding. And what I mean is that recently immigrated patients were also more likely to be admitted to the intensive care unit in the last six months of life, they were more, and they were more likely to undergo mechanical ventilation, dialysis, tracheostomy, and percutaneous feeding tube insertion in the last six months of life as well. Hmm. So definitely it's all congruent that uh, these individuals for whatever uh, driving reason, are requesting or are receiving more intensive uh, care, so to speak, no pun intended, near the end of life. Yeah, you're right, Kieran. That's, uh, that's how I interpret that as well. And another interesting aspect, though, to follow on to your earlier question about geography, is that we did do analyses which stratified the recent immigrant cohort into subgroups based on variables that only really made sense in the recent immigrant cohort. And by that, I mean things like language ability on arrival to Canada, or duration of time in Canada, or education level on arrival to Canada. And most interestingly, it turned out, was region of origin, or region of birth before coming to Canada. And when we looked at how the relative risk of being in the intensive care unit at death varied according to the region of origin of recently immigrated patients, uh, we found striking uh, variability. For example, recently immigrated patients originating in Northern and Western Europe were less likely than long-standing residents to be in the ICU when they died, whereas patients originating in South Asia, Western Central Asia, or Africa were almost twice as likely to be in the intensive care unit when they died. Chris, what are the major limitations as you've seen going through this study and probably having to answer to several reviewers? What do you think the major limitations of your study are? Well, Kieran, our study has several major limitations, that's for sure. And I'm happy to mention a few of them here. I think the biggest limitation of the study is that our data really doesn't capture a lot of important aspects of end-of-life care. We don't have any data on goals of care discussions. We don't have any data on advanced care planning. We don't have data about symptom control, and we don't have any data about patient preferences. And all of these, I think, are essential to delving further into why we saw such a difference. I, absolutely. And I think that's, as we've seen in a lot of the studies that we cover on the rounds table that are you know, retrospective or administrative data-based studies, 
you just don't get that level of uh, information. And those are one of the major limitations of working with administrative data. But that being said, you also find some very important outcomes on a very large scale. As you said, almost a million patients uh, in your study. That's true, yeah. Now, wrap it up for us. We're getting to the end here. What are the main learning points you think that our listeners should take away from your study? The main learning point is that recently immigrated patients in Ontario were more likely to receive aggressive end-of-life care, especially uh, depending on their region of origin. And, you know, what to do about this is less clear. For me, you know, how this has changed the way, the way that I practice is, is that I have tried to become more open-minded and curious about how the cultural and religious backgrounds of my patients may inform their end-of-life care preferences. And, and may inform their access to end-of-life care, and especially, as you mentioned earlier, my own approach to helping to provide their end-of-life care. And I mostly hope that readers perceive this study as a reminder that all patients deserve thoughtful, culturally competent end-of-life care. Well, there it is, straight from the author's mouth. This is why we're so lucky sometimes in Toronto to have access to such incredible researchers. And Chris, we are so happy that you could come onto the show and take us through your study, because it certainly caught my eye, and I think it's going to catch the eye of thousands of researchers and clinicians around the world. Okay, Chris, uh, let's switch gears now uh, to our special segment for this month, which is an interesting approach to how to do research. Um, And Shaliza is going to cover qualitative research methodologies, which is actually very applicable to palliative care. And as we just discussed in your study, um, would be a great opportunity to get at the understanding of cultural differences and decision-making around end of life um, in the last six months of life. So Shaliza, take it away. Hi listeners, it's Emily and Shaliza back with a special segment. This month, we're chatting about research methodology. Qualitative and quantitative research are both important in medicine. I, for one, am much less familiar with qualitative methods. I don't think that I'm alone among medical trainees and MDs. Shaliza and I wanted to put together a segment with some high-yield concepts for MDs to know regarding qualitative research methods. We reached out to Dr. Lindsay Melvin, a general internist at Toronto Western Hospital with experience and knowledge in qualitative methodologies. She recently completed a Master's of Education and is a friend of the Rounds Table, working on a qualitative study evaluating the show. Who better to help us with this segment? She put together some key points for MDs to know about qualitative research. Thanks so much to her for her input. Let's go through our main points. First off, let's talk about designing and conducting a qualitative study. Shaliza, what did Dr. Melvin have to say? Hi again to our listeners, and thanks to Emily for our introduction and to Dr. Melvin for her excellent work on this segment. Speaking to your first question, there are many different types of qualitative methodologies, just as there are many types of quantitative methodologies. Qualitative research is exploratory and seeks to understand the why or the how of a particular question or problem from the perspective of the population being studied itself. The researcher is not external to the research, rather is an important part of the research process. Already very different from quantitative research, qualitative studies often seem to me to have smaller sample sizes than quantitative studies. Why is this? And what strategies are used to know when you have reached a substantial sample size? In contrast, in contrast to quantitative research, qualitative research does not look to represent the entire population. Rather, sampling in qualitative research is what is called non-probability sampling, where not every person in a given population has an equal opportunity of being selected. 
Participants are chosen specifically, and the selection strategy should be made clear in the methods. For example, in one broad category of sampling in qualitative research called purposive sampling, the researcher intentionally selects members of the population based on who they think would be most appropriate, informative, and applicable to the study. This leads really nicely into my next question. What is theme saturation, and why is it an important concept to understand in qualitative research? In qualitative research, different participants often have diverse opinions and experiences. The sample size for the study must include as many participants as required to explore the range of possible experiences, opinions, and perspectives held in the area of study. The concept of saturation implies that the collection of new data does not bring any new concepts, ideas, or themes to the idea being studied. Therefore, the more complex an area being studied, the greater the number of participants that will be required to reach saturation. I've read that qualitative research is not intended to be generalizable, in contrast to quantitative research. Can you expand on this? Why is this important to understand as a consumer of qualitative research? According to Dr. Melvin, generalizability refers to the fact that when a sample under study is random, it therefore statistically reflects the greater population as a whole. As we've discussed, in qualitative research, the population being studied is not meant to be reflective of the entire population. Therefore, generalizability is not a concept that immediately relates to qualitative research. In qualitative research, the findings are discussed in terms of transferability, which refers to how the findings of a particular study can be transferred to another context or setting. To determine transferability, it is important to understand the phenomenon, context, and population being studied in depth so that the reader is able to make the judgment whether or not the findings can be applicable to their setting. Some high yield points. I know more about qualitative research already. Thanks so much to Lisa and Dr. Melvin. We've included some links on the Healthy Debate website under the show notes for those who want to read more. Thanks to our listeners. Let's move on to the study that I chose for the week. Um, this study looks at the addition of lorazepam to Haldol in patients who are delirious uh, and have advanced cancer near the end of life. So we're talking about palliative care this week, and this study was published in JAMA in September of 2017. All right. Uh, Kieran, very interesting study you've chosen. Uh, What is the bottom line for this article? Well, Chris, uh, this is a randomized trial of only 58 delirious patients with advanced cancer who were receiving palliative care. And in these individuals, the addition of lorazepam to haloperidol compared to haloperidol alone resulted in a significantly greater reduction in agitation at 8 hours. The addition of lorazepam to haldol, therefore, may provide superior control of agitation in patients with persistent delirium. Interesting. And Kieran, why did you choose this article? Well, delirium is extraordinarily common in the last days of life. About 90% of patients experience delirium, and I often counsel patients as it's part of the natural dying process. That being said, it's very distressing, at least to the caregivers. We're we're not sure about how distressed patients are per se, but there's never been a trial comparing lorazepam to placebo for delirium. And current guidelines actually recommend a trial of lorazepam if Haldol does not work. Now, last year we covered with great interest on the grounds table the randomized trial that examined different pharmacologic strategies to treat individuals with delirium who were receiving palliative care. And ultimately, the sort of end of game was that antipsychotics were found to cause more distressing symptoms in these individuals compared to placebo. Um, but they didn't examine lorazepam in that study. They did, however, use midazolam as a rescue therapy when the antipsychotics didn't work. 
But this trial sort of took a slightly different angle and said, is a combination of lorazepam and Haldol superior to placebo and Haldol in the treatment of persistent agitation in patients with delirium and advanced cancer? So we're looking at Haldol as a background and adding lorazepam on to see if we can get any additional benefit in treating their delirium. Great. I thought that the design of this study was very practical, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. Mm-hmm. It was a very practical study. So it was a double-blinded, parallel group, placebo-controlled, randomized trial, a very straightforward, typical randomized trial. In patients who had hyperactive or mixed delirium, that being sort of hypo and hyperactive delirium, they were allocated in a one-to-one ratio to receive either lorazepam and haloperidol or placebo and haloperidol as a treatment for a single episode of restlessness or agitation. This took place between 2014 and 2016 at the Acute Palliative Care Unit at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. All right, and so who are the patients in the study? Well, they included adults who had hyperactive delirium and agitation, which was captured according to the Richard Agitation Sedation Scale. And in this scale, if you had a score of two or more over the preceding 24 hours, despite receiving scheduled Haldol of a dose of one milligram to eight milligrams per day, then you were included for the study. Okay. And any relevant exclusion criteria to mention? Yeah, I think a couple of things uh, for the external generalizability of it. They excluded individuals who had dementia. They obviously excluded people who had received benzodiazepines or chlorpromazine in the previous 48 hours prior to entry into the trial, or those who had contraindications to neuroleptics, you know, your prototypical person being somebody with Parkinson's disease, where Haldol can uh, worsen their Parkinson, uh, Parkinsonism, I should say. And so I think that was, those were fairly fair and obvious exclusion criteria. Uh, so what was the intervention? Uh, you told us a bit about it, but maybe just give us a little bit more of the, the about the intervention. Yeah, so all enrolled patients immediately initiated a standardized open-label regimen with Haldol, 2 milligrams, given every four hours intravenously, and another 2 milligrams every hour as needed on top of that for agitation. When the agitation persisted, patients received either a single dose of 3 milligrams of lorazepam or saline infusion as the placebo, followed by an additional 2 milligrams of Haldol. And then blinded physicians and nurses were involved in the identification of potential patients, uh, administration of study medications, and documentation of the study outcomes. So it's attempting to be a double-blinded trial. Okay. And what was the primary outcome? So the primary outcome, Chris, was to measure the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. And I didn't mention it before, but this is a validated 10-point numeric rating scale that ranges from negative 5, which is an unarousable state, to positive four, which is a combative state. And they measured this at eight hours, uh, and it was done by the bedside nurse. And so they really wanted to look at change in the RAS score from baseline. Then they used additional secondary outcomes to assess uh, whether additional psychotropic agents were needed to be used and how much. They measured patient comfort as was perceived by caregivers and nurses. That was done uh, every day. They looked at the adverse event or effects related to the use of benzodiazepines or other neuroleptics. And they also looked at the overall survival from the time of study medication administration. All right, Kieran. So what were the main findings of this study? So it's a small study. They had 144 eligible patients. This is done at a single center. 93, so that's 65%, were enrolled. And 90, which is 63% of the original eligible patients, were randomized and started on the standardized haloperidol regimen, as I described. 
from the 144 down to 90, more than half of those individuals who were excluded left the trial because they weren't interested in participating um, or they were concerned about adverse effects of the medications. Now, the real meat of the matter. So ultimately, of the 90 patients, 58 of them developed agitation uh, that was greater than 2 on the RASS scale that required rescue medication and ultimately received either lorazepam or placebo in conjunction with the Haldol that they were already receiving. Those that didn't receive the medications either died or were discharged and hadn't developed an agitation episode. So quite a, quite a few number of patients after randomization who ultimately didn't participate in the trial. So Kieran, what did they actually find with regards to the effects of the intervention on delirium? So, you know, these drugs, uh, especially the lorazepam, come on pretty quickly. Um, and they found that within 30 minutes, delirium scores were significantly different between the placebo versus the lorazepam group. And these scores persisted to the eight-hour endpoint mark. Just to give you a little bit about the numbers, uh, individuals treated with lorazepam had a RAS score of two points lower than placebo. And interestingly, the desirable RAS score among patients with agitated delirium is actually quite ill-defined. And it's likely to depend on how much caregivers and patients value alertness in the context of the dying process. So it's tough for me, Chris, to tell you, you know, we're all trying to get to a RAS score of 1 or minus 2. Some of that depends on the preferences of the patient or the patient's caregivers, um, as they said, in the context of the dying process. However, the study uh, authors did their best uh, in the context of these limitations and said, look, if we target a RAS score that is avoiding those greater than or equal to 1, so we're not dealing with hyperagitation, but also trying to keep uh, excessive sedation to a minimum, and those would be defined as a RAS score of less than or equal to negative 3. So we try to operate in a zone between a RAS score of minus 3 to positive 1. That we find in this trial, based on those differences, it's a number needed to treat of 2 with lorazepam to keep people in that range. Kieran, I noticed that among the patients who received the lorazepam dose, although there was uh, a larger number of patients in the zero to minus two RAS zone that you mentioned, which is probably the ideal zone, there were almost 50% of the patients who ended up in the RAS zone of minus three to minus five, which is probably uh, too sedated for most patients. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, and that was one of the major criticisms as well that has been mentioned around the literature since the publication of this study. Lorazepam is a sedating medication, and I think it really depends on the frame in which you are operating as far as the preferences of the families. But certainly, we try to strike a balance of reducing agitated delirium at the end of life, but not sedating our patients into a non-interactive state. And I, and I completely agree that that is something definitely to pay attention to and to apply when, when you're trying to you know, use this trial to dictate your treatment, that you may ultimately end up over-sedating your patient, if, if that's the appropriate word. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think it's an excellent point, Chris. Well, Kieran, so based on all of that, how do you think you'll incorporate this new info into, into your own practice? Yeah, it, this is a tough study for me. I mean, it's a small study. It's a single center, albeit the drugs that are used are fairly straightforward and the protocol is pretty reproducible. You know, my overall interpretation is to say that, yes, lorazepam is superior to placebo if you're measuring RAS scores. 
in treating delirious patients near the end of life who are already receiving Haldol. But I think the way to that I would approach this is to very carefully counsel the families if they're very distressed by the agitated delirium to say, we can try the use of lorazepam, um, but be aware this may lead to over-sedation or heavy sedation. And would that be okay? Or would that be what the patient would want? Uh, could they speak for themselves? Well, thanks so much, Kieran. Thanks for sharing that article. All right. Thank you for being on the show, Chris. You know now, I don't know if you know this actually, but it's my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. I'm going to do things slightly different. Normally, I let the co-host go first, but I'm interested in Chris's uh, discussion today, and mine is related to palliative care, so I'm going to steal the spotlight and go first, Chris. Go for it. We talked a lot about palliative care today, and I wanted to bring up a, a really interesting initiative called Coordinate My Care Service, which is occurring in the United Kingdom. And primarily, the goal of this service is to enable persons to die where they choose, uh, as this is considered a key quality indicator in end-of-life care. So the Coordinate My Care service enables persons to create a digital urgent care plan with their clinicians that is accessible to all health and social care professionals involved in their care. They analyzed about 9,000 patients and more than three quarters of them died in their chosen location. And most of those patients preferred to die in the non-acute sector like an ICU or a hospital. They preferred to die at home or home care or hospice. And, you know, this really was a powerful tool to communicate across a healthcare system that can often be very somewhat fractured your advanced care plan about where it is you would like to go uh, in this world Um, and I thought it was an innovative use of technology to do so. Wouldn't it be great to have that here in Toronto? eh? I agree Um, hopefully hopefully it makes its way across the pond. Yeah. Chris what were you reading about uh, this week? Well, mine is a bit different, but it's something I've, I've been reading about this week, but also keeping my eye on all summer. You know, when I'm not working on database research or learning how to be a critical care and internal medicine physician, I do love to spend time on my bicycle. And there has been a revolution in the cycling world in Toronto over the summer, largely inspired by parking enforcement officer Kyle Ashley. He is a parking enforcement officer who was specifically assigned to helping make sure that bike lanes are clear and safe for cyclists at the start of the summer. And he set up a a social media presence. He tweets under the handle at TPS underscore parking pal. And he tweets about cyclists that he sees. He tweets about cars that are parked in bike lanes that he tickets. And he tweets about cycling safety issues. And he has become a rallying point for cycling safety in the city of Toronto and a great advocate for people who ride bicycles. There's been articles written about him in France and uh, Denmark. People tweeting their jealousy that we have such a great advocate here in Toronto. And there's even a number of other parking enforcement officers who now work with him. And, you know, he has like more than 5,000 followers on Twitter now. And it's just been uh, a great change in tone or in the cycling community because uh, our city is quite busy and full of traffic. And although biking is a fantastic way to stay healthy, you shouldn't have to put your life at risk to do it. And it's great to see that supported by the Toronto police as well as by the enterprising Kyle Ashley. That is fascinating and certainly reassuring as I'm a biker myself. Uh, Well, Chris... All good things must come to an end, and including this episode of The Rounds Table. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's truly an honor to have you on here as the primary author of a very important study in palliative care. 
um, and we hope to have you back sometime soon. Thanks so much, Kieran. Uh, always great to speak with you. Great work running the Roundstable podcast. Thank you very much. The Roundstable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.